was probably a few years ago, um, and this has happened a couple of times, but this time it was, it was uh, notable. Uh, the, a few years ago, Kristen and I noticed a, a nest full of baby birds outside of one of our windows. Happened to be the window to our nursery at the time, if I remember correctly. And, uh, and we watched those baby birds just about every day. You know, it was, it was hard not to. I mean, you'd be in the nursery and you'd hear this constant, like it sounded just like a squeaky tire, like the smallest little squeaky noise you can imagine. And you'd look outside and you'd see those baby birds in that nest doing what baby birds do, which as uh, some of you, uh, I'm, I'm sure many of you have seen baby birds in a nest before, you know that, that the, all of their life, I mean, uh, everything that they do consists at that stage of life in sitting in that nest with their heads pointed upwards and their mouths wide open. I mean, they look like they're all mouth. I mean, it's like they've got, you know, a little tiny feathery downy body and then they've got this beak that's disproportionate to the rest of them. And they just sit there with their mouths open all day long, waiting for Mama Bird to come and put something in them. Which, of course, she does eventually. And then she flies off, but they just sort of keep doing the drill, you know, keep opening their mouth, and that's how they live. It was interesting to have that outside of our nursery because we are very much experiencing the same thing with our child. Um, more so our second child than our first. Uh, Cal was never a huge eater. Um, our second child definitely is. Um, he's, he's, I mean, he's all about food. Um, and in fact, I, I, kind of, I saw a, a video on YouTube that reminded me of him the other day. It was a, a video of a mom trying to eat while her baby was in her arms. A uh, baby who had had no solid food to that point. Um, but every time he saw his mom take a bite of her sandwich, he would open his mouth as wide as he could and just knock his head towards the sandwich as hard as he could. Um, never got a bite, of course, but didn't stop him from trying. The truth is, we are, uh, from the very beginning, before we can think, before we can speak, before we can articulate uh, even the desires that we have, from the very beginning, we are full of desires. That's, that's a part of us that comes before everything else. Before our thought, before our will, before our ability to make moral choices, before our ability uh, to make choices at all, we are desiring creatures. There's a quote often attributed to Thomas Cranmer or other reformers of the church during the, the Reformation that what the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. Now that's kind of backwards from the way we often think about ourselves. We often think that we think ourselves into this decision or that decision. I made this decision because of what I think, because I'm smart, you know. I, I thought through all the options, and I chose that one. In reality, I think most of the time, the, the operation is in reverse. Our hearts desire, our hearts love. And what our hearts love, our will goes after, and our mind makes sense of it. In other words, we're not just thinking creatures, and maybe not even first and foremost thinking creatures. Nor are we just acting creatures, as if our actions are the thing that most define us. What seems to define us the most is not what we think or what we do, but what we love. It's for this reason that we come back to the great commandment Sunday after Sunday to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor as yourself. The great commandment is not to think rightly about God, not even to act rightly necessarily, although certainly love entails action, but to love. To love God and to love our neighbor. God made us as desiring creatures. He formed our desire. And that's, that's a key point because there are some faiths that see desire as a bad thing. Something that we have to sort of get rid of in ourselves somehow. 
as if salvation required the elimination of our desires. Christianity is not that kind of faith. We don't propagate a stern, stoic rejection of all desire. We believe God made us with desire, and if God made it, it was good. Unfortunately, was is the operative term here, right? Because uh, we, we know that God made us with desires, God made us good, but we also know that from the very first time humanity was faced with an unsatisfied desire, they didn't turn to God, but they tried to find satisfaction apart from God. And ever since then, we've been stuck in that very same cycle. Our desires are bent and are broken. And they lead us consistently into two postures that try to satisfy our desires apart from God. And this is where the psalm uh, begins to speak to this question of desire, which is what I think is at the heart of the psalm. We have these interesting uh, commands not to envy those who do evil, which kind of sounds strange at first. Why would I envy bad people? You know, I don't look at them and think, well, that's the life I want. But uh, what he's saying is, is when we have unsatisfied desires, we tend to look at those who seek to satisfy their desires by any means necessary. We see that their desires are satisfied. And that's that's where we face this temptation. And there are two ways to respond to that temptation, two temptations within that. First of all, we try to force the world into satisfying our desires so that we grasp and take what we want by force. That's the wrath and anger that the psalmist is talking about. Second, even if we don't seek to satisfy our desires by force, by just taking what we want, taking care of ourselves, um, we might envy those who do. The psalmist describes this in verse 1. He says, fret not yourself because of the ungodly, neither be envious of those who are evildoers. Why would we envy them? Because we desperately want something. They have it. They've attained it for themselves. We look at those who have their desires satisfied, whether through good or evil means, for that matter, and we wonder why they can fulfill these desires and we can't. We become resentful and bitter. And it's one thing to talk about those desires in terms of a bigger house, uh, a better relationship, a more comfortable financial situation, whatever it is. It's, it's, uh, it's one thing to talk about those, but there are desires that go deeper still, desires for safety, for security, the desire to know and be known, the desire for approval and affection, desires that cut to the quick of our hearts. So the psalmist says, wrathful and angry, resentful and bitter. That's, that's what we become when we seek to satisfy our desires apart from God. It turns out that these desires don't end up being the great and lofty things that we thought they were. Those people who have their desires met, those evil ones who through rage and wrath and uh, envy and grasping and all this, those who have what we want, the psalmist assures us that they're going to wither like the grass. Those desires that we look at and and place so high in our hearts turn out not to be the great and lofty things that we thought they were. They often turn out to be cheap and weak and flimsy things. We go from one thing to the next, hoping that the next relationship, the next object, the next bit of knowledge, the next job, the next thing will surely be the one that satisfies us. And lo and behold, it doesn't. There's always another next thing. The truth is, there's no such thing as satisfaction apart from God. Not real, lasting satisfaction. Not that deep kind of satisfaction. That settledness of soul. Just as there's no such thing as a a cold fire or a round square. It's just not possible. 
It's not that our desires are too big for God, that he can't meet them because they're somehow beyond his capability, nor is it just that he won't meet them because he's somehow just being mean. It's that our desires are actually too small, that they need to go through a process of transformation. C.S. Lewis puts it this way in The Weight of Glory. He says, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised to us in the gospel, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, he says, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. That's what happens in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve settle for knowledge of good and evil apart from God. Seek to attain the likeness of God apart from God. They settle. There was more still for them. So the warning that the psalm gives us first is not to fall into these postures of grasping and envying. Instead, we hear what the psalmist urges us to do. And the first thing he tells us to do is to trust in God. Verse 3, he says, put your trust in the Lord and do good. And later in verse 5, commit your way unto the Lord and put your trust in Him. We put our trust in God because God and God alone can satisfy our desires. That means we depend on Him. We rely on Him. The scriptures bring us back to this point again and again. In Revelation 22, we read, The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let everyone who hears say, Come. And let everyone who is thirsty, Come. Let anyone who wishes take the water of life as a gift. In John 6, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. We trust in God because God and God alone can satisfy our desires, that deepest hunger, that deepest thirst that we experience. (laughs) Part of this is asking God to satisfy our desires. It's not an accident that half of the Lord's prayer is just asking for simple daily things that we need. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. Simply asking for what we need day to day. Asking God for what we want, even when it's a desire that may be small, that may seem childish. That shows that we're willing to receive whatever he gives rather than simply to take what we want. It treats what God gives as a gift instead of something we're entitled to. Teaches us to be thankful. So we trust in God, seeking to live in faith, taking all our desires to him in prayer But of course, the fact that we've brought something to God doesn't mean that he will always give it to us. Often our prayers probably mimic the little bird in the nest, screeching with its mouth wide open. So we're told in verse 7 to wait on God. There's something that all of the promises listed in this psalm have in common, and there are a lot of promises in this psalm. They are all in the future tense. This shall happen. God shall give you the desires of your heart. You shall inherit the land. So the psalmist says, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. There are times where God in his mercy and grace satisfies our desires in this life in very clear and tangible ways. And then there are times where he doesn't. 
times where it seems inexplicable and, and uh, is, is incomprehensible to us why that would be the case, but times where in his wisdom he has us wait. And so the psalmist says, wait and see. Jesus, as always, is our perfect example of this. When he's faced with that 40 days of temptation in the wilderness, he's hungry. I mean, he's gone without eating for 40 days. You would be hungry. And Satan comes to him and he tempts him with food, but Jesus decides to wait. Then Satan tempts him to prove his position by calling angels to come to his rescue, and Jesus decides to wait. And finally, Satan offers to him all the kingdoms of the world, which is exactly what Jesus was there to gain. Except that Jesus' way was to go through the cross. And we know from the prayer in Gethsemane that wasn't Jesus' preferred method. Nevertheless, when Satan offers him an easier way, a quicker way, he waits. He chose to wait on the Lord and in his timing. And after the temptation, some of his desires were satisfied. Angels tended to him, proved his position. He was fed, settled his hunger. But as for the last temptation to gain authority over all the kingdoms of the world, he had to wait longer still. Had to wait through Gethsemane and through Calvary and through the cross. The truth is, as we wait on God, our desires are crucified. And resurrected. They're transformed. They go through this process of giving our desires to God, letting Him return them back to us in a transfigured form. That's what the psalmist means when he says in the most striking verse of this psalm Delight yourself in the Lord, and He shall give you your heart's desire. The promise is that our heart's desire will be met. God will give us what we desire in time. But that promise comes with an exhortation. Delight yourself in the Lord. Meaning that as we go to God with our unsatisfied desires, as we wait on the Lord and in his timing, as we trust him, those desires are transformed more and more into that deepest and most real desire that all of us have. The desire for God. To be known by him. To be welcomed by him. As we delight in the Lord, he will give us our heart's desire because he will give himself to us. In other words, when God is what we truly want, then we will be truly satisfied. But the pathway to this satisfaction is not to just reject all our other desires. It's not to just refuse them. It's this and only this. And this is what keeps this psalm from being just an outright rejection of those lesser desires. It's a call to a greater desire. We hear delight in the Lord. Delight in the Lord. If we heard that word about duty at the end of our gospel reading today as some kind of a trudging, depressing word, then we have to remember that that duty is not without delight. I think a lot of us this morning have probably come here out of a sense of duty. That's okay, I'm not judging you. Glad you're here. But it's important that we not stop at that duty and fall short of the delight. After all, God is delightful in the truest sense of the word. He made towering mountains and sprawling plains. 
He gives those birds songs to sing. He makes the stars twinkle at night. He's delightful. He's the tailor who dresses the wildflowers in all of their splendor. He's the poet who designed the intricacies of speech. He feeds you. He clothes you. He shelters you. He's brought you here to this large extended family full of celebration and of joy and of encouragement and support. He is delightful. He sent his son to bring light to those in darkness, life to those in death, and love to those who are lost. And he feeds us today with his very own flesh and blood for the nourishment of our souls and for the strengthening of our hearts. He's delightful. His spirit always bears in our hearts the fruit of patience, of goodness, of faith, of hope, and of love. And above all, joy. He's delightful. God satisfies our desires in time if we will only be satisfied in him. As we go out from this place, we'll be assailed by all of those desires which seem to us to have no fulfillment in this life. Desires that plague our hearts, that inspire fear and doubt, uncertainty, that tempt us to grasp at satisfaction or to envy those who have it. Brothers and sisters, stand boldly, unmoving in the face of that temptation, under the weight of all of those unsatisfied unsatisfied desires, knowing that the truest, deepest, and best desire that we have is for God himself. Trust in him. Wait on him. Delight in him. Be satisfied. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.